Colossians chapter 1, God willing, John chapter 12, next Lord's Day, but Colossians chapter 1 is where I landed this week to bring you a word from Paul's epistle to a church in the ancient world. Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter. It's astounding to think of the content of some of these what we call prison epistles. He's doing various things in chapter 1, and one of the things he tells them is that he's praying for them. I'm going to read from verse 9 9 and following, probably through at least verse uh, 14. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. We heard of your uh, faith in Christ Jesus. Do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and who has conveyed us or transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom, in the Son of his love, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, if we kept reading, who is, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Wonderful passage, Paul giving a little Um, peek into his prayer life for the Colossians. And I want to focus on verse 14, in whom uh, we have redemption. The New King James has the phrase, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Um, I think it's in the previous text in Colossians 1. If it's not there, it's not a big deal. We know that redemption's through the blood of Christ anyway, right? Whether or not uh, it's in your English version, I think it's better to have it. But nonetheless, I want to look at this wonderful statement. In Christ, believers in Christ have redemption through his blood, that is, the forgiveness of sins. So notice, first of all, the means whereby the blessings of redemption come to believers. In whom... We might say, by whom we have redemption. Whatever redemption is, and that's our next point, the fact of redemption, whatever redemption is, it's by virtue of another's work. It's in connection with somebody else's work on behalf of those who are redeemed. We don't redeem ourselves. We're not co-redeemers with another. This by whom or in whom is very important. The Son of God is the agent of redemption. We would say the Son of God incarnate is the agent of redemption. Now, watch this. In verse 16, the Son of his love, the Son of the Father's love, the beloved Son, is also the agent of creation. This is the mystery of this two-natured redeemer we have. For by him all things were created, by him, that is, by the firstborn over all creation, by the one who is the image of the invisible God, by the one in whom we have redemption, the Father's Son, the Son of his love, 
By him, all things were created. Okay, so he's the agent of creation as well, that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Very majestic statement by Paul there about the agent of creation identified here as the Son. But notice in Colossians 1.20, the agent of redemption is also the agent of creation is also the agent of reconciliation and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. If you go up to verse 18, and he is the head of the body of the church, that is Christ. He's the, uh, he's the agent of redemption. He's the agent of creation. He's the agent of Reconciliation. He's the head of creation. It's for him. He's the head of redemption. He is the head of the body, the church. So this is no small figure we're talking about. By whom or in whom we have redemption. Uh, The son of the father's love then is the redeemer. Okay, if you're redeemed, by the way, I'll define that in a moment. You're redeemed by him. Therefore, he is your redeemer. We don't contribute a little to our redeemed status, except that for which we need to be redeemed from, right? Sin and guilt. He is the exclusive redeemer. He doesn't share the the vocation, the calling, to be the mediator between God and man, to be the redeemer with anyone else. There's no co-mediators, okay? Uh, either male or female, uh, living or dead. He is the exclusive mediator between God and man. No other way to get into the safe presence of God except this one in whom or by whom we believers have redemption. So that's the means. It's Christ. Notice the fact of redemption. We have, uh, we could translate this literally, in or by whom we are having redemption. Uh, Then it says, through his blood. What does redemption mean? It's used a lot by Paul in the New Testament. It means something like this, to be set free from something and bought by the payment of a price, okay? So you're in trouble, and somebody goes over there and does something and gets you out of trouble, okay? We could even say it means to set free by the act of buying. Some of you know the buying language, the purchase language of the scriptures with reference to our Lord. Redemption in the Old Testament often involves uh, three aspects, some sort of bondage or slavery from which to be freed. By the way, if you are a Christian, you know what I'm referring to. I was in bondage to myself, to the devil, and to the world's unbelieving system, okay? If you're an unbeliever, that's one of the first things you've got to come to grips with. I am a mess, and I need fixing. In the Old Testament, redemption uh, 
uh, often involves some sort of bondage. Well, it did involve bondage or slavery from which to be freed. And the biggest picture of the redemption of Christ in the Old Testament is Israel's bondage to Egyptian slavery and God's freeing them by having them shed a little blood and put it on their doorposts. Even that redemption was through blood. Also in the Old Testament, this concept of redemption involves the payment of some sort of redemption price and a human intermediator acting to secure the redemption. All the three of these aspects can be seen in the New Testament's teaching on the redemption that Jesus secures. For instance, uh, Romans 6.17, you were slaves of sin. That's Paul writing to believers. You were slaves of sin. So there's bondage, there's slavery, from which somebody needs to be saved. Colossians 1.13, believers were delivered or rescued from the power or domain of darkness in which they were slaves of sin. You see that is happening as the New Testament describes the Christian salvation, this side of the cross and resurrection of Christ. It has believers formally as slaves to sin in deep darkness and in dark, and in dark trouble. But also in the New Testament, we have a payment of a price. Listen to Mark 10.45. All this to show you that the redemption that is in Jesus is revealed in the Old Testament in various ways. Its ultimate fulfillment is him. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to, here's the purchase language, give his life a ransom for many. So here is the Son of God incarnate, the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Paul explains it this way in 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you were bought at a price, and the price is the ransom paid by the Savior, that is, he gave himself up, okay? But also, the New Testament picks up this intermediary language. There's somebody who's affecting this, uh, in this case, on a creaturely level, and yet mysteriously, this is the two-natured Redeemer, 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. So there's the price being paid, and there is the one who is doing it, Jesus. There is also... Uh, in the New Testament, picking up themes from the Old Testament. This giving himself is viewed a, as a payment of a price. By the way, he pays a price and he secures something by virtue of that payment. Something that wasn't his in one sense and now is his. You, you, you've been bought with a price. You're no longer your own, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, 1 Corinthians 6. This redemption, this giving himself for us, he purchases us, body and soul, so that we're no longer our own. We're, we were creatures, fallen. Now we're creatures who had been fallen, who are now redeemed, purchased by the master himself, our Lord Jesus Christ, to do with us as he 
pleases. So Jesus' death was the ransom paid to secure the emancipation of slaves to sin. We've been set free from this uh, slavery. This means our Lord owns all that he bought. You've been bought with a price, okay? So if you're a believer in Christ, that means he bought you. Um, Remember that line by Mike Horton one time? He got what he paid for, okay? He paid for you. He suffered from womb to tomb. He obeyed from womb to tomb in order that he might purchase sinners. We're now his possession he is our master. He is our Lord. Have you, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. So redemption means the payment of a price to secure those in bondage to sin through a human mediator. But again, this human mediator is the agent of creation. So he can't just be only man. He has to be both God and man in one person. So we have the God-man mediator. So I said earlier, we could say literally, we are having redemption through his blood. Now, Paul is not looking back exclusively to what the son did to secure redemption. Redemption accomplished. You've heard me say it before. Paul is concentrating on the present fruit of redemption applied in the lives of believers. We, now notice this, in whom we have redemption through his blood. Now watch this last four-word statement. The forgiveness of sins. Um, The forgiveness of sins. Do we in the 21st century experience subjectively, the forgiveness of our sins now upon believing Christ or do we experience that? Did we already experience it 2,000 years ago? No. So redemption accomplished is one thing. Redemption applied is the fruits of the benefits of Christ brought to our souls. We are having the benefits of being redeemed. That is the forgiveness of sins now. Is redemption exhausted by the forgiveness of sins? We are redeemed, excuse me, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, through his blood. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How do we sort through all that? Is Paul talking about redemption or the forgiveness of sins? Is redemption exhausted by the forgiveness of sins? is all there is to be redeemed by Christ, encapsulated in the words, the forgiveness of sins? That's a good question, because it could almost read that way, um, but I don't think that's the way we ought to read it. Through his blood, through his shedding of his blood, for the remission of our sins back in the first century, we here in the 21st century who believe this gospel message are having the benefits of redemption. We're experiencing the benefits of redemption. And what is the first thing normally you consciously experience as a new believer? The forgiveness of sins. I think that's what he's doing here. So this is a 
the particular blessing of redemption that he highlights is the forgiveness of sins. No small thing. You know, it's one thing for me to say, yeah, I forgive you for backing into my car on purpose. I looked at Tom. He hasn't done this, by the way. Don't try it. For backing into my car on purpose or because I took your parking stall at the Walmart or whatever. Uh, but I'm still going to have filed the paperwork with the insurance company. But, but I forgive. I'm not like going to hunt you down, drive to your house and throw eggs at your uh, windshield or something. It's one thing for this horizontal thing, right? Honey, I forgive you. You know, I don't hold that fault or transgression against you, though I reserve the right to bring it up later and throw it in your face, which that happens a lot, doesn't it? Um, Not throw it in your face, just stating facts, honey. Isn't that how we get out of it? So it's one thing to go horizontal, right? I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. It's another thing to have this announcement from heaven, your sins are all Forgiven. You remember, I think I told a story last week about a friend of mine. He was kind of moping and groaning about being 40 and single. And Pastor Anderson says, you're 40, you're single. It doesn't look like you're ever going to be married. You drive an old jalopy. You dress like one of those old TV show guys I can't think of. But your sins are forgiven, he said. You know, This is a huge thing. This is why we're here, right? Because our sins are forgiven. And we want to be reminded of that every week and grow and, and get saturated in the grace of that knowledge. But we want others to come to that knowledge, the forgiveness of sins. I think this is a Paul saying, we have redemption. And the first experience of that redemption, which is quite larger than the forgiveness of sins, is, however, the forgiveness of sins. There's a liberty that comes to the soul that recognizes Christ as taking their guilt and the first you know, conscious recognition of that, which you might not be consciously remembering right now. Okay, that, That's not the big thing. The big thing is, do I now believe in Christ as my only hope? But at some point, people come to that conscious recognition that they're worse than they think they are. God's way better than they'll ever imagine. And the answer to my, the solution of my plight is Christ. And this sense of the liberty from the bondage to sin, the forgiveness that we have in Christ, uh, can overwhelm the soul and make the soul you know, quite happy. And make people cry with tears of joy. Some of you probably experienced that before. In Paul and the Bible, redemption is larger than just forgiveness of sins. Okay? We have redemption, and the first subjective experience of it we call the forgiveness of sins. But there's a lot more for the redeemed to enjoy this status of redemption that was purchased for them by Jesus. In Romans 8.23, believers are eagerly waiting for the adoption, that is, the redemption of our body. That's, that's a part of the package of redemption. Purchased by Christ so that he can do whatever he wants with us. And you know what he wants to do with us? Raise us from the dead so that we enter glory with him. So that's part of redemption. This, this, uh, this, this, Adoption, that is the redemption of our body that takes place at his second coming. If we are waiting 
eagerly waiting, it says. If we are waiting, then we don't have what we are waiting for, right? But somebody has it to confer upon us. And all the second graders said, that's Jesus, the agent through whom many sons are brought to glory. In Ephesians 4.30, it says, you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, that's interesting. I thought we were already redeemed. Yeah, we were by his work. I thought we are having redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Yes, we are. The work of redemption, the objective accomplishment of it comes to souls by the grace of the Spirit in conjunction with the Word. But here it says you will you were sealed for or, or unto the day of redemption. That looks like future. So there's a past aspect of redemption, right? There's a present aspect of redemption, the chief element of, of it being the forgiveness of sins, but there is a future aspect of it as well, sealed for the day of redemption. That is the redemption of our bodies. That is the transformation of our corpses to be corresponding to the transformed soul that is already absent from the body and present with the Lord. The soul is glorified. It comes back and is, it meets the body and meets the renewed body by the power of Jesus. But here in our text, Paul might be assuming all that stuff, the past aspect of redemption, future aspect of redemption. Here, Paul focuses on one present aspect of redemption the forgiveness of sins. That is, God no longer holds believers in Christ guilty for their sins. That's a, that's a mouthful right there. Believers are not guilty. Well, believers are guilty but not held accountable for their guilt. Believers are not under a sentence of condemnation because Jesus was condemned for them. Forgiveness of sins does not mean sin in the generic or in the abstract, but concrete, real, personal, public, private, and ugly sins. There are no such things as pretty sins, by the way. They're all ugly. Believers are, are forgiven not of some sins, Excuse me. Believers are forgiven of all sins, not some sins and not others. Some sins Jesus covers. Others you got to face God on your own, that kind of thing. All sins. When God forgives, he makes no distinction between sins or sinners. You say, well, what if I'm a horrible sinner? What if I've done dastardly deeds in the closet, in the dark places, maybe not of society, but in my own soul, will he forgive those kinds of sins? If he doesn't, he won't forgive any kind of sins. Okay, so therefore, since he does forgive, he'll forgive those kind of sins. He forgives us of all of our sins. I wanted to read a quote by John Gill. He says, The forgiveness of all sin, original and actual, so anything I might have inherited from Adam, that's forgiven. Anything I might have done, actual, that's forgiven. Of heart, lip, 
and life. I like how these old guys say it. Of heart, of lip, and then conduct, way of life. Secret and open. What do you mean secret and open? Secret and open. Open for other creatures to see. Secret in the sense of creatures didn't see it. Doesn't mean God didn't see it, okay? God sees all. Past, present, and to come. All of them. The forgiveness of sins. Okay, this is a brief sermon, and so we are moving to contemplation now. I have 93 contemplations for you this morning, either that or just three. We learn here that the redemption of sinners by Jesus has some parallels with the redemption of Israel from Egyptian bondage. Now, I kind of already mentioned this a little. The redemption uh, secured by Jesus, the redemption of sinners by Jesus has some parallels with something that's gone on beforehand a long time ago. There was another redemption before the incarnation that sets the stage for the incarnation. It has some like and unlike aspects. People were in bondage, Egyptian pharaohic bondage. That's not a word it is now. Okay, they're in bondage. They, they were unable, to, they didn't have the power to release themselves from that bondage. They needed a power not only stronger than themselves, but a power that could overpower the power that was over them. Pharaoh, or in this case, the devil. They got out by virtue of divine power executed toward them, but they didn't get out without the implementation of creaturely means, right? They had to shed blood of an animal, of a lamb, and put it on their door, and that was the sign that they were believing that God would do this. So we could say this. We learn here that the redemption of sinners by Jesus has some parallels with the redemption of Israel from the Egyptian bondage. This is like 1,500 years prior to what we read about in the New Testament, God is doing stuff with ancient Israel that sets the world up for a greater work through the incarnate Son of God. Uh, By the way, if you go down to verse 15 of Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Firstborn, the son of his love. Israel, let, uh, uh, Jehovah, let my son go, my firstborn. Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. Ancient Israel is called God's son, God's firstborn. There's some sort of relationship between the historical people of ancient Israel and the quintessential Israelite of all Israelites, the incarnate son of God. One is certainly greater than the other, but the first, somehow, someway, in some of their actions, typified this greater work of God in the Son. We could put it this way, just as the Israelites were in a dark and oppressive place, so sinners, redeemed by Jesus, were trapped in the domain of darkness. Just as God liberated Israel from bondage, so Christ liberates sinners from bondage. One is great, the other is much greater, though, right? 
Just as God's liberation of Israel involved the blood of lambs, so Christ liberates sinners by his own blood. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist, John chapter 1. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. If Abraham and Isaac were alive at the time of the death of Jesus, Abraham would have said, told you. There's other things. Just as God took the Israelites out of Egypt and gave them an inheritance, the promised land, so God takes sinners out of the bondage of sin and qualifies them for a future inheritance. This is Colossians 1.12 and following. Just as God ruled over Israel, so God places believing sinners in the kingdom of his beloved son to be ruled by him. As you have, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Be ruled by him. Do what he says. Not to be saved, but to show your gratefulness that I, I needed a power stronger than me and stronger than all my horizontal creaturely enemies to overpower all that stuff. And that's exactly what you gave me in Jesus. He purchased me. I'm no longer body or soul. I'm no longer my own. I've been bought with a price. Give me grace to glorify you in my body and my spirit. Should be our attitude. We could keep going just as Israel was given a memorial meal to remember their deliverance from bondage, the Passover. So the church has been given a memorial meal, the Lord's Supper. We could even go farther just as Israel was given a memorial day, the Sabbath. So the church has been given a memorial day, the Lord's Day. What the Old Testament typified in Israel finds its fulfillment in Jesus and his body of the church. Second contemplation, it's honing in on the text more um, acutely, we learn here of the only way f forgiveness of sins comes about. We learn here of the only way forgiveness of sins comes about. It comes about by the work of the Father's beloved Son. Okay, If you are to gain forgiveness of all your sins, it must be by virtue of Jesus and Jesus alone, the work of the Father's beloved Son. Forgiveness does not come by church attendance. You're going, well, why did I came to church and now you're rebuking me for coming to church? No, I'm not. I'm just saying don't trust in your church attendance for the forgiveness of your sins. Trust in Jesus. Forgiveness of sins does not come by resolves not to do certain things again. Oh, man, I had a bad week. I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to do that, that again. Therefore, my sins are forgiven. No. The basis of sins forgiven is not resolves. Forgiveness of sins does not come by writing checks to religious organizations. If you want to write a million-dollar check to this religious organization, please do it. That would be great. But don't think by virtue of it, I'm going to glory, my sins are forgiven. Okay, We don't buy our way to heaven. Forgiveness with God is received. Through faith in the Redeemer of God's elect, the Son of God, the Father's beloved one, our Lord Jesus, and him alone. Third and finally, we learn here the nature and present blessing of the present kingdom of God's beloved Son 
that is, the forgiveness of sins. So this present kingdom of God and the present blessings that we get has nothing to do with geography, has nothing to do with politics, has nothing to do with so-called race. This kingdom of his blood son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins through his blood, is a spiritual kingdom in which all who are in it have all their sins forgiven. By the way, this is why we sing, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Some of you were actually... Two of you might have been there when I, we were singing this song many, many years ago in southern part of Palmdale, up in a little foothill. And there were, we were meeting in a home still, and there were 30 people there or so. And I preached a sermon, and I thought 580 would be a good hymn to sing. And in the front row uh, were people looking this way, and then second row, and back in, you know, it was about 30 chairs or so, kids and adults. And there were mirrors up on the wall where you could, you know, if you were looking at a mirror, you could see people and all that stuff. And we actually took the mirrors down later because we realized that's a distraction. But we were singing that very line itself. I kind of looked over in the mirror. Yeah, I looked in the mirror, sorry, to see what was going on. And a senior saint was in the front row, tears streaming down his eyes with a smile on his face because he recognized this, and he was, if he was here, he would say there was, I was, Paul was the chief of sinners, and I was the first Indian right behind him. My, this is what he was, his soul was so happy about. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. It's a wonderful line. In the 19th century, a Scottish Presbyterian commentator on Colossians says this, So deep is man's guilt, and so tremendous is the penalty, so agonized is his conscience, and so terrible are his forebodings, so utterly helpless and hopeless is his awful state without divine interposition that a free and perfect absolution from the sentence stands out not only as a blessing of indescribable grandeur and necessity, he's talking about the forgiveness of sins, but as the first and welcome offer and characteristic of the gospel of Christ. And it is no sectional and partial blessing. It makes no distinction among sins, no discrimination among transgressors. Its circuit, the forgiveness of sins, is complete for every sin is included, that it is offered with unbounded freedom and invitation. No previous qualification is requisite, and no subsequent merit is anticipated. End of quote. Thank you, John Eady. Now I know why I bought this commentary in the late 1980s. Because of stuff like that. See what he's highlighting? That first experience of this 
full-blossomed redemptive privilege that we have as believers, this forgiveness of sins. We get the full pardon of sins, and it's not based on future merit to earn the pardon of sin. It's not like, okay, I'll give you a little forgiveness now, but the rest of it, you got to merit yourself. God doesn't do it that way. Ephesians 1.7, Paul tells us that the redemption that comes to us is according to the merit of our efforts. I just got rolled eyes in the front row here. I agree. It says here that redemption comes to us according to the riches of God's grace. Ah. Here's the old Scotsman again. The favor of man is soon exhausted. It soon wearies of forgiving. But God's grace has unbounded liberty. I love that line. Has unbounded liberty to forgive. Much is expended. Many sinners of all lands, ages, and crimes are pardoned. Fully pardoned. Often pardoned. And frankly pardoned. You think about that. He's writing that in the 19th century. All the sins that have been pardoned throughout the history of mankind. We can add the 20th and parts of the 20th century to that. Much is expended. Many sinners of all lands, ages and crimes are pardoned, fully pardoned, often pardoned, and frankly pardoned. And if your soul's going here, well, when does this pardon end? But infinite wealth of grace remains behind. There's always grace to pardon. It's not like, you can't say either on an individual or on a corporate basis, well, we've sinned too much. There's no more grace to pardon. Infinite wealth of grace remains behind. Okay, well, grace is a bucket in heaven. There's no limits. There's no bottom to it. It's just exhaustless. God's grace, we could say, is never depleted. Is always infinite, is ever boundless, and is eternally inexhaustible. No single sin is too great, and no combination of sins are too much for God's forgiving grace. In whom we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, I want to end this sermon by reading this prayer. If you don't have this, I highly recommend you get a copy. The Valley of Vision, the compilation of the old prayers. This one is called The Precious Blood. Blessed Lord Jesus, before thy cross I kneel and see the heinousness of my sin, my iniquity that caused thee to be made a curse, the evil that exists, that excites the severity of divine wrath. Show me the enormity of my guilt by the crown of thorns, by the pierced hands and feet, by the bruised body, by the dying cries. Thy blood is the blood of incarnate God. It's worth infinite. It's value beyond all thought. Infinite must be the evil and guilt that demands such a price. Sin is my malady, my monster, my foe, my viper. Let me say that again. Sin is my malady, my monster, 
my foe, my viper, born in my birth, alive in my life, strong in my character, dominating my faculties, following me as a shadow, intermingling with my every thought, my chain that holds me captive in the empire of my soul, sinner that I am, why should the sun give me light? The air supply breath, the earth bear my tread, its fruit fruits nourish me, its creatures subserve my ends, yet thy compassions yearn over me, thy heart hastens to my rescue, thy love endured my curse, thy mercy bore my deserved stripes. Let me walk humbly in the lowest depths of humiliation, bathed in thy blood, tender of conscience, triumphing gloriously as an heir of salvation. Let's pray. Lord, may that prayer be our prayer. May we recognize uh, our plight, the only God-given solution, and then once we've done that, do the only thing that's reasonable, and that is to give ourselves away for Jesus. We need help in this. We're weak. We're feeble. It's we owe him all, everything. We give so little at times. Forgive us, but grant us the strength, motivate us by the gracious uh, act of humiliation by the Son, assuming our poverty, our nature, our duties, our liabilities in order to bring us to God. May Jesus be the uh, inspiration of our souls to live for him. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.